Welcome to Jepper Bites, a podcast that delivers thought-provoking ideas and meaningful debates from the iconic Z Jepper Literature Festival. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. The session you're about to listen to is from day three of ZJLF 2019, and it is called The Shape of Justice, Identifying Gender Violence and Finding Solutions That Fit. Simmer Singh, Sohela Abdulali, and Sunita Tour in conversation with Pragya Tewari. ourselves living in a moment in time which has the potential to change the course of history. We are lucky to be alive in a moment like this. The struggle for women's rights has been ongoing for centuries, but of late the power, the determination, and perhaps most so the solidarity has turned the struggle into a real battle, the charge of a brigade that can no longer be written off. I shouldn't need to say this, but I am going to nonetheless. The enemy is not men. The enemy is a deeply entrenched system that has been designed, that is all pervasive and has been designed to oppress and suppress women. And after years of silence and resignation, finally, there is change in the air. The Me Too movement has been very difficult, particularly for women who put themselves in the line of fire by calling men out and demanding justice. But the victories have been sweet, even if small. And it may just have lit the fire for something larger. Thousands of women in Kerala are agitating to enter Sabrimala, to exercise their constitutional right as reinforced by the Supreme Court. And earlier this month, I think close to 5 million women stood peacefully holding hands in solidarity with women who are fighting for gender rights. But as exciting as this moment is, it is also tricky. The extent to which we gain ground depends on how we deploy strategy and weapons. And there is still no greater weapon than words. To be able to counter any kind of oppression, we must first be able to clearly identify it, recognize it, and call it by its name. Violence does not always manifest itself in the ways that we are conditioned to believe it does. Sociocultural realities, economic realities, and intersectionality play a big role in the sort of violence and how much violence a woman is likely to face in her lifetime and more importantly, whether or not she's going to find justice and redemption. Some of us are lucky that we have a platform such as this to talk about gender justice, but we must not talk and we must not tell our stories as if they are the only ones. Over the next 30 odd minutes, we are going to raise some questions about how we can make the path ahead more inclusive and how we can identify the innumerable facets that violence has and the innumerable ways in which justice can be sought and can be found. So, Hela, starting with you, you've written an absolutely wonderful book called What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. And you've written about being raped as a young woman and the support that you found from your father and from your parents. But what struck me most 
more than even the support that you found from them was the nature of the support. You found a lot of agency. Your, your, your parents let you decide what you wanted to do rather than take over your life to try and protect you. How important is this agency and how rare is this agency? I think it's really important and relatively rare. In my case, I got agency from my parents in the sense of I was completely left to decide what I wanted to do, but it stopped right there. There, there. Nobody else was willing to let me do what I wanted to do. So I think if you're going to talk about justice for women, we need to talk about their options to even pursue justice. In my case, I'm officially a woman who lied about rape, but I didn't lie about being raped. I lied about not being raped because I wanted to press charges, but when the police came, um, they made it harder and harder to do it until the point where I said, I can't do this because they were going to lock me up. So the only way to get them out of the house was to sign an affidavit saying nothing had happened. So I'm a woman who's lied. But so there, there was no agency there. My only agency was my father letting me do what I thought best. So I do think that it is really important. And it's, in every culture, there are ways that women are stymied in this way. In the U.S., for my book, I interviewed women in the U.S., in Africa, in Europe. Every single person, I interviewed men, I interviewed trans men, sex workers, and everybody had a way in which the agency was taken away. So that rape is not just the violation that the rapists or rapists do to you. It's also what other people do. I mean, if you're a sex worker, you don't want to report to the police because that gives them a license to rape you again. And also, there's a society which believes that, hey, if you have sex all day, you can't be raped. So whoever you look, wherever you look, there's something stopping you from doing what you might want to do. You might not want to report that and go that route, but you should have the choice. Do you um, regret ever that you, at that moment in time, just to get them out of your house, lied and didn't? press charges in the end? No, because I regretted it then because I had this wonderful naive view that justice would be served. But now I realize it would have been a nightmare and I really, I had no choice. I had to, it was be locked up, miss going to college and all this stuff. So I don't regret it, but I do realize that, that, you know, we, it, there's justice for society and there's justice for the individual. And we need both. And I think a big trick, especially with sexual violence, is that they don't always match. Like maybe justice for society would be if someone like me, even knowing that they're not going to get anything, goes to court, does the right thing, reports it because, you know, that's your duty. That's justice for society. But for the individual, that might not be the right thing to do. So where do you, where do you, who do, how do you decide? I personally always go for the individual because I feel like, all the worst social movements come from not putting a person's humanity first. But I do think these two forms of justice don't always match and become tricky. I want to go back to what you were saying about uh, the ways in which uh, survivors are, you know, their agency is taken away by criminal justice systems uh, in different parts of the world. But before that, I would like to ask you, do you feel that over a over the course of time, there's so much water under the bridge, there's so much that you've done with your life and such incredible things that matter. Have you found justice and redemption in some way? 
I guess it depends how you define justice. I I don't know what however you define it. I mean redemption. I didn't feel I had to be redeemed. I I felt I was fine, but I I don't know if I got justice because somewhere out there those guys had no they had they had no accountability. Nothing happened to them. On the other hand, there I was 17 years old. The only reason I didn't get murdered is because um I promised them I would never tell anyone and here I am you know with seven publishers so that kind of feels like revenge like, so I did, I feel I did get that but but I do feel I I do feel sad that there was a system that didn't let me pursue it on the other hand like I said rape intersects with every other issue I'm sure Sunita can attest to that because suppose I had taken them suppose I had filed a report I was a relatively advantaged person i lived in a house these were poor men it occurred to me even that night that i could have po- gone out and pointed to any four poor guys on the street and they'd have at least got beaten up so where's the justice i mean i it's not that i was some namby pamby person feeling sorry for them but i would want a fair trial for anyone and they weren't going to get one so no matter how you cut it there was no justice in that system so i think we have to think about other systems you no know, like i met these sex workers in sangli and they band together and if they had they told me a story of a man who one of their clients who would kind of go beyond and abuse them and beat them and they all got together got some chili powder rounded up on him threw it in his eyes and it never happened again so that was their justice you know uh, we're going to get to other forms of justice hopefully in whatever 5 minutes we have left <laughs> but uh, um I just want to stay with the criminal justice system for a couple more minutes before I come to you, Sunita. Do you? Uh, I, I know the counterfactuals are tricky, but you've lived uh, some part of your early life in, in in Bombay. You still have roots in Bombay, and uh, but a large part of your adult life in the U.S. as well. Um, would you have? Do you do you imagine that you would have ended up pressing charges if you were in the U.S. instead? And I ask this because criminal justice systems in both places are broken, but broken in different ways. Um, could you talk a little bit about and in this particular context how those differences manifest themselves well i i think that it's really the same except it's a question of degree i don't know if i would i don't know what i would have done but i remember when i worked at the rape crisis center i heard about a woman a white woman who was raped by a black man and didn't press charges because she said he raped me but he will never get a fair trial and in the us there's a system that you know there's a common thread of black men pleading guilty whether they've done it or not because that way they get a lesser sentence so i think that whole thing about social you know social strata and how all our bigotries and prejudices come into court exists there too so i don't know i suspect i would have because i wanted to but there's no way to tell of course uh sunita this is an area that you're working in you're uh, running a project called justice for her uh, which i believe involves sensitizing the police force towards women who uh come in and um um want to press charges for sexual assault and other forms of violence could you tell us a little bit about that project um, sure so um my project just for her has been across um four key states in india so we've worked in delhi haryana punjab and madhya pradesh um that work has been focused on police and first response so what happens to women when they come forward and go to the police so what we wanted to do was look at what training do police officers receive and 
We don't use the word gender sensitisation because we don't think that gives enough onus to what we want police officers to do. So our focus has been about really reshaping and completely recreating new training for police officers that challenges their mindset about women and female victims because they are the first responders. That is if a woman comes forward. And for us, it was really important to look at what communities were saying about why women didn't go to the police. So we did a lot of work initially with community groups and lawyers, NGOs, civil society, and the police to say, tell us your realities about gender-based violence in India. And that provided the basis for the work that we did. Um, we then went to the heart of police academies and we trained um, trainers in police academies that are going to be responsible for the next generation of police officers because we feel that that's where the change can have impact. That if you start engaging the next generation of police officers that maybe there's an opportunity to really address how they then go on to police from a human rights social justice perspective. You know, it's interesting about the training of police officers because when I lived in America and worked at the Rape Crisis Center, we used to train police officers too. And I think one of the most important things is that police officers, like the rest of us, have to realize that what we think of as rape is really not what, you know, it's the stereotype rape is not the usual rape. Yeah. Like, my rape was like the, you know, the Hindi movie rape of the outsiders and the weapons and the murder and all that stuff. But that's, most rape happens domestically. It happens within the home. So that's the first yeah. step. And, and one of the things that we focus on isn't necessarily types of crime. We do do that. For us, it's a perspective of how do you distinguish between victims? So when you have a female victim, why do you treat them differently to a male victim? And if you've got people from vulnerable communities, why do you treat them in a particular way? So for us, we used a lot of principles of um, empathy and principles of positioning where, um, yeah, our training is quite controversial. I, I, I made police officers question and challenge their viewpoints. So we did a lot of things about role play, um, epiphany, um, positioning. Um, we did games with balloons and nails to get them to think outside of the box of how they treat people in society. Um, and that's what really made the difference for us. And uh, that sounds like an excellent project and there's just so much to be fixed when it comes to the criminal justice system. Um, police is, of course, one part of it, but uh, courts and uh, the way, the manner in which investigations happen is another part of it. Uh, my partner, who's a criminal lawyer um, and who interfaces with the criminal justice system every single day, just before the session, I asked him off the top of his head uh, if he had to name five or six very basic things, very, very basic things that could change um, to shift the needle for uh, justice uh, for women, uh, what would they be? And this is, uh, this is, this is what he sort of jotted down. I'm quickly going to read this out. Uh, magistrate training, statement to a magistrate. Uh, the magistrate needs to be better conditioned and ask questions so that there are no gaps in the narrative that are left. Poor quality of initial medical reports. They're often unusable in addition to leaving a woman completely traumatized. The investigating officers have, have poor infrastructures, little training, and are overworked. A trial the trial schedule needs to be determined on a day-to-day uh, uh, in, ahead in time and day-to-day -day trials held uh, to expedite justice and uh, reduce the trauma. Uh, 
witness protection, a woman comes under tremendous pressure to compromise a case and very often does. Um, and forensic labs are poor and uh, have a lot of backlog. And the concentration of limited resources is on more violent crimes and uh, they need um, to, uh, there's a need to look, uh, there's a tendency to look to the uh, treatment of domestic violence. Domestic, I, I think what he, the paper's torn, but I think he was saying that uh, there's a tendency to look at domestic violence mostly as a marital dispute. And these are just some of the things at the top of his head that needs to change. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, um, or use the hell of that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I would say that I think the most, we, we've trained lawyers before in the past as well. Um, I've worked with police, different areas of criminal justice. One of the most powerful things is when you get somebody to think about it from, if this was your wife, if this was your daughter, how would you want them to be treated in that system? So I agree with that, Liz, but I also think there's got to be a level of agency that is much more powerful. So some of the things that we do in our training is visualization with police officers to say, if, if this was your, the most important female member of your family, uh, are you happy for them to go into your local police station or would you be comfortable with them going into your local police station and supported in the way that you would want them to be supported? If the answer is no, then, you know, you have a responsibility to protect your own daughter and your own female members. And that's one of the things that we start with and that's, that's where we get lawyers, police officers to really engage with the programme because it then becomes this thing that... This is real. This could happen to me. And how would I want that person to be treated? So that, that's one of the principles that we engage in all those things that you said. So when it comes to medical reports, when it comes to magistrates, we do the same thing, that sort of positioning of how would you want this to play out if this was somebody important to you? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that it's... It starts even before that. It's like even the statement that we make, we all say this thing to people, if this was your wife, this was your daughter. So one thing is that many people, if this was their wife, this was their daughter, they wouldn't want them in the criminal system at all. Yeah. They want to hide it. There's that. And the other thing is, you know, it begins with the attitude before you even get to court. Why do we always say, if this is your wife and daughter, why not, if this is your son and father and brother, how do you teach the boys to... You know, the people who are actually committing the crimes, do we have to take on board not only that rape victims are our wives and daughters, but that rapists are our yeah. brothers and sons and fathers. So we need to do both. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's another question to be raised, of course, here when we come, you know, because there tends to be a lot of focus on the criminal justice system. And this is something that Suhela brought up uh, a, a little bit earlier. And, you know, there is a larger question about whether, uh, given that a lot of violence is intertwined with relationships, uh, how, even if all the technical issues were fixed, whether the criminal justice system can ever be properly equipped to deal with issues of consent and, and uh, sexual violence. But I'll leave that for another time because we have very, very little time. But, you know, moving beyond the criminal justice system, when we think of justice and revenge, like you said, it's a word you used in the beginning, Sohela. I think of the Ramayana and Mahabharat, uh, both epics based on wars that were ostensibly fought for the honor of women. And yet, towards the end of both epics, Sita and Draupadi seem to have found little justice and, and peace. So, Ella, in all the women that you have interviewed, how important is 
punishment for their assaulters to their mind? And are there things that might be equally important or if not more important for them when it comes to their needs? Well, it's interesting because I talk to women all over the world and this business of punishment, actually th that word comes much more from the mouths of men where, you know, if someone, it's happened to someone you know, you want to hurt them, you want to kill them, you want to get them. And I think for most, I can't, you know, I'm just one person. I can't speak for most women. But the people I've talked to, the trend I see, and I don't know if you found this, is that it's not so much you want punishment, but you want acknowledgement. You want recognition. And sort of the gold star of recognition, even though you shouldn't care, is recognition by the people who did it, that they did it. And, that, and so it's that, whatever, in whatever way it's recognized that this happened to you, that it was not sex, that it was rape, that it was wrong and that you didn't deserve it. So, I, you know, I, I, I haven't talked to a single person who said, you know, I wish he was locked up. But I have talked to people who felt really good when they, in whatever way, dealt with the rapist in a way that felt empowering to them. You know, whether it's forgiving him, whether it's, you know, turning their back and leaving him, either way. Uh, I, I was going to ask you a question, so maybe you can add to that. Actually, this is for uh, the both of you. And one of the things that Sohela does wonderfully in her book, and uh, this is a little bit of a contentious issue, but she talks about how uh, not all rape is the same without getting into any kind of oppression Olympics. You know, I mean, without taking away from the trauma of any kind of rape, she does make a distinction between different kinds of rape. And I was just wondering if you found that the relationship, and, and, and I will extend this to violence, not just uh, just sexual assault, but um, I, the relationship uh, with the uh, perpetrator or, or the nature of the violence or when it happens, or uh, these are the things that might play into what women, what sort of justice women might seek or what sort of recourse women might seek. Um, th there's a couple of points um, that, have, that have been raised. I think there's one about... What does a woman want? I think it's really important. And the, the issue of punishment in all the work that I've done over the last 20 years, the key thing, particularly when it's repetitive violence, the woman, the victim just wants it to stop. And they don't want to be put in that environment. So they, they want it to stop and they want to feel safe. And immediately after things like sexual assault, where it could be stranger rape, they just want someone to repair the damage that's been caused. So they want to be able to go into safe spaces. So I think that that, that does distinguish just the response that you need to give. You need to listen to the victim and see what they want and give them that level of agency back. The second thing is, which is why um, Simar's here, is that dealing with men's responsibility is vital you are never going to combat gender-based violence if you do not engage men in that discussion because men are responsible too. This is not a problem. We teach our daughters, be safe. You know, I have a daughter myself and you think about personal protection as a woman. Women on a daily basis globally have to engage with the fact of their personal safety. But the message is really clear. You have to also engage men that a real man doesn't treat a woman badly, and that gender equality is about men engaging in that debate as well. Absolutely. Again, without uh, you know getting into any kind of oppression Olympics, um, would either of you would do do either of you or both of you feel that um, 
when it comes to emotional violence, it's often under-recognized because maybe it's more difficult to identify and uh, the, even though it can be equally damaging. Yeah, or more. And then if you're talking about the criminal justice system, then you can really drive yourself mad because there's no law against emotional violence. I guess there's verbal abuse. But yeah, I think it all boils down to this whole business of this remembering that rape is like you said, it's not, it's not like a thunderstorm. It doesn't just happen. Somebody does it. Somebody chooses to do it, which means that somebody can choose not to do it. And that's the lesson we have to teach our boys and girls. I mean, teaching girls to be safe, it's like given the chances of abuse are more in your own home, you teach them something, but you know, in the end, you've got you to model and teach your kids. You can't you know, and you have to really model it. You can't just say, you know, boys and girls are equal and then kind of save all the malai for your son. You have to really live it. So, uh, Simar, you've written poems about um, marital rape, which is, of course, very brutal and very out there, even though we as a country fail to recognize it. Uh, but you've also written about subtler forms of uh, violence, uh, about men not being able, not feeling free to uh, display their emotions or women's desires, their passions being stifled. And of course, you've uh, written a poem about the project, which is inspired by the project that Sunita is working on. Um, I'd first like to ask you, what is it that, as a young boy who started writing poetry, what is it that attracted you to these themes? And then perhaps after that, um, I could request you to uh, maybe perform the poem for us. Sure. So I think firstly, uh, I agree with most of the things that was, like I think everything, uh, being the only male in a panel uh, with three women talking about gender-based violence uh, is a, probably a great thing firstly for me because I have seen panels on news channels with uh, seven men and one female talking about the Asifa rape case or the Me Too movement. And they, that just makes me think like you aren't supposed to be there, you know. Pass on the mic to someone who actually has something relevant to say. So being a young boy, I think there's a lot of onus on me, a lot of responsibility on me and people, young guys like me, who have to sort of understand the importance of our voice and the issues that we are standing up for and how important is, is it for us to educate uh, other men around us to be sensitized towards gender violence. So, yeah, I mean, if it's okay, I think I'll, I'll just start with Absolutely. the piece. And more power to you. Uh, do you want to... I'll, okay. I'll do it away. Awesome. So, uh, how many of you have ever been to a spoken word ev event before? Do you know what we do in spoken word poetry? We snap, right? Those of you who don't know in the back, if you like something in the poem, you got to snap. So, can I have everyone snapping in the audience? It's already very cold, so it's going to make you feel warm and better. Plus, it's going to keep encouraging me. So I'm going to do an example. I'm going to say something. If you like it, then you snap. JLF is a great festival, right? Snapping? Awesome. Great. So we'll keep this up. And this is a letter that I've written to all the men out there. Men, we've been playing in fields since we were 10-year-old boys. We even had stronger toys that we never let our sisters touch because we assumed they won't like them as much as they like their soft toys and dolls. So we took this call and 
followed it till our marriages shunned any other narrative would macho up our sleeves as medals up our sleeves and refuse to accept that we're vulnerable or weak in any way and there hasn't been a single day when a man hasn't hit his own wife or a rape hasn't threatened the life of an entire nation that sleeps through all of it falls our gener- our generation's patience that things will change with time fades with every rape and every lost case we've internalized this every day normalized patriarchy we look at each other and wonder who's to blame for this unjust society that we ourselves have built and refuse to question so we sit through sessions of a parliament that just decided that the triple talaq was not right while women still continue to fight to enter holy temples of a god that apparently says men and women are not equal and we're living this every day as if it were a sequel of our patriarchal past that we can't seem to outlive or outlast but we expect our wives to fast for our longer lives while we continue denying them equal rights men we call other men our brothers and tell them that maybe maybe we have become too woke and that it is okay to crack offensive jokes between the blokes men we don't understand that we live with continuous privilege that we inherited when we were born as men we can't disengage with this conversation and just give our sympathy to victims as consolation for the humiliation that they face and they continue to face while justice awaits to be served to those who truly deserve it we're all shocked by such stories but we act like we don't hear them we sit in our armchairs and tell the world on facebook that we condemn the systematic discrimination built on the pillars of our patriarchy that our forefathers set up so we dress up as woke modern day activists speak about bringing women forward with all male panelists and when asked where are the women we say it was by accident men His last words the plea to not make things worse i have rehearsed this a hundred times but i still seem to forget the ending lines because truly i don't know where the ending lies but sometimes i see the end in the eyes of young boys who want to learn how to care and love correct find a voice of a feminism that truly intersects all straightas of our diverse society raise children who don't take the movement so lightly they have been quietly learning and growing and showing the rest of us how bitter our world has been with violence in our actions and thickness in our skins they are making us realize that if we all work together then everybody wins dere Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform in partnership with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Zee Jepper Literature Festival. Thank you.